Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. This week on Power Hour, we're going to continue our discussion of what I call energy liberation, the opportunity to free consumers and producers of energy and yield amazing results, as well as protect, well, the same thing really, but from a different perspective, protect everyone's rights. And this week I wanted to bring on somebody uh, whom I think is really great at showing us what the future could hold if we did liberate the energy industry and more broadly, the rest of the American economy. Uh, This is Mark Mills. He's done an episode before. If you haven't heard his old episode, definitely go listen to that. It's a great one, but here we're going to be talking about America's energy future and America's energy potential, really. That's a better way of putting it. So stick around. It'll be fascinating. We'll be back with Mark Mills on the other side. Power Hour. Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. We're joined now by Mark Mills, Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a Faculty Fellow at, the, at Northwestern University's McCormick School of Engineering. Mark, welcome back to Power Hour. Great to be here, Alex. Thanks. All right. So, listeners who haven't heard the last episode we did with Mark, and I think it was April 2013, and the reason I remember that is because that's the last time I've publicly debated someone from any of the green organizations. That was the Sierra Club and nobody's wanted to since, so that's a good sign. Anyway, I remember <laughs> I remember exactly where victory, I was. Victory, victory is there for you, Alex. Victory, yeah, they yeah. wouldn't even they wouldn't even promote the event even though it was right right near Earth Day. So, yeah, so I think it was April twenty thirteen. Anyway, so uh, those of you who remember Mark should remember that he is has amazing content uh, on how energy works and I think really inspiring content about what energy could be. So what I wanted to do today was take a couple of areas that are either in energy or related to energy and talk about what they could be, how to get there, and then how we're falling short. And this, this all integrates into the theme I've been working on lately of energy liberation, how we're holding back our energy potential and the potential thereby of everything that flows from cheap, plentiful, reliable energy. Um, so Mark, let's start first with the area of the electric sector, which you've written a lot about. You had a really interesting article recently on, I think it was on, it was on renewables and the electric grid, which might come up. Uh, but what is the what is the potential of the electric sector? The thing I hear most these days is, oh, we can have a smart grid where the California government can prevent me from using my air conditioning. Uh, presumably, there's a better vision of what the electric grid uh, should be and ought to be. Yeah, that's for that's, that's for sure. Talk about an anemic vision. So we're going to let the government have a better idea when you're using your air conditioner. I mean, that's that's essentially to, to reduct you ad absurdum, and not only know when you're using it, but stop you from using it when it's inconvenient to the government for you using your air conditioner when electricity has become more expensive to produce because everybody else is using it at the same time as you. So let me start by just making an observation of electricity that's 
that's critical to understanding what the future possibilities are and why certain technologies matter and others don't. And it has to do with a unique feature that people tend to forget because we've done such a good job by we, I mean, the Western world, at producing this remarkable commodity. Electricity, in the form we use it, doesn't exist in nature, in a sense. We don't, we don't dig, gather, you know, uh, plow up, store, you know, uh, harvest electricity. We have to produce it uh, artificially. Everything else in the, so the pantheon of commodities are, are, don't fit that category. And worse than that, it has to be produced the instant it's consumed at the 99% level. It means that 99% of all the electricity that society uses is, is produced at the same moment, give or take, you know, milliseconds, that it's consumed. It is, this is utterly unprecedented in human history. And the commodity itself doesn't flow, although people talk about flows because it's an economic convenience. But the grids get energized, and they energize at close to the speed of light, and they destabilize at, at those kinds of speeds, too. So here you are with the, the fastest-growing form of energy use in the world. It's, it's been for a century electricity from the end-use perspective. And it's a commodity that is utterly critical to modern society. It is a commodity that supplies 60% all of all of end-use energy to everything we do in the United States, excluding planes, trains, and automobiles. So the planes, trains, automobiles category is heavily unelectrified and oil-based, and everything else is heavily electrified and getting more electrified by the day. And of course, if people like Elon Musk and others have their way, and we have magic new batteries, which could happen one day, will increasingly electrify that part too. So that, that's important, that framework, because then you, then you ask the question first, uh, not what will technology offer, but what do we need? What we need is a grid that is not just smarter. It's been a smart grid since 19, oh, roughly 55, when the first computers were used to control grid stability. The electric sector has been, been smart for a long time. The grid's been smart for a long time. But we need it smarter. But more importantly, because it's such a critical commodity, it needs to be more reliable, and it has to be cheaper. The last thing in the world that we want in any economy is for the most critical energy form, which happens to be electricity, to become less reliable and more expensive. So everything about technology and technology policy electric sector should be, and has been until very recently, driven by those two key metrics. How do I provide more of it cheaply so that more of it can be used for more things by more people who have less money, and how do you make sure it's utterly uh, and phenomen phenomenally reliable? By reliable, that you know, given again that it has to be produced as it's consumed, not just reliable through storms, but reliable operationally continuously. So then, the, then what I would say that we know if we step back from what policies are doing, what what does the future look like? The future technologically looks like we we at least in America, certainly the rest of the world can follow this. Uh, are on track to the ability to make a grid that's even more reliable, even cheaper, and even uh, more useful because it will become smarter, that is the control systems become better as power electronics get better. It'll become easier to monitor and operate and it'll become much less common to have outages and failures. It's, I mean, the technologies that are emerging now in the control systems are phenomenal in terms of what we can do to control electricity. This has not been possible for, for a century. Power electronics, the kinds of controls you have over information, 
the kind of storage of uh, and routing of, of data, remember data is just electricity as well, it's really easy because you're talking about milliwatts and microwatts and picowatts. To do the same kind of thing with the energy that operates a society, the energy flows are millions of times higher. And you can't use the same kind of transistors to control a million times more energy. It's like comparing, controlling the flight of a toy quadcopter drone to a 747. It's much easier to control a former. That's what information is. But we are on the verge now of producing power electronics and transistors and control systems, if you like, routers that can manage power levels at the 747 level. You know, a single high-voltage transmission line carries as much energy continuously as a 747 in flight. These are phenomenal amounts of energy that are, are sort of coursing through these, these power lines. But look how tiny the space is. It is an unbelievable achievement of the 20th century. The 21st century will not be marked by disassembling that grid and disrupting it. It'll be marked by making it better. And the way it'll be better is through controls of, of analytics and power electronics. But the primary fuels used to make the electricity, because remember, we're making it artificially, so to speak, will be, for the foreseeable future, hydrocarbons, or in the, you know, the popular phraseology, fossil fuels. And in the United States, mainly natural gas, uh, and despite what's being attempted today, coal, secondarily, and then tertiarily, a mix of everything else, which will be hydropower and some wind, of course, and a little bit of solar. By a little bit, I mean relatively speaking. In absolute terms, solar will go up. So the future that's possible is a cheaper, more reliable grid. But what is actually happening is we're building policies that will, or will impede that from happening, in fact, even cause the opposite to happen. Well, that was a very thorough answer to that, to that question. That's one thing that's fun about interviewing you is, is I just get to sit back and, and listen. Uh, so, yeah, in terms of the reliability, one, one thing I want to ask about just the, the current state of affairs is to what extent is, does unreliability cost people uh, a lot? Because I, I don't think people have an idea of, of the magnitude of it and thus, and, and it's, so partially they don't know how much goes on now and then partially they don't know how good a job the electric grid is doing and what could be worse. So maybe what, how, what are the issues with reliability now that hurt us, but also around the world are there examples where we can see, wow, if it got worse, it would be much worse? Well, we could, we could imagine uh, our grid being like the grid in India. So in India, uh, on average, in any given day in most of the country, the power is not available for several hours a day in many regions. And so we all know from a personal experience having uh, lived through outages from ice storms or hurricanes. Uh, to say it's inconvenient is an understatement when power is out for any extended time. But imagine living in a society where it's out uh, pre pretty much daily for hours. This, this is disruptive personally, but it's, it's deeply disrupt disruptive economically because you can't operate a, a factory or commercial building that way. There's, there's been a lot of research on uh, mapping out the costs of outages across different kinds of businesses and different kinds, different parts of the country and different parts of the world. But on average, depending on what you're interrupting, the, the cost of to a to a business, uh, and of course you could really only measure it for, from a business perspective. For consumers, it's there is a cost, but it's a social cost. It can even be a, a life-threatening cost if it's a you know life-sustaining equipment. But for businesses, the cost of outages ranges from 10 to 1,000 times the cost of the power itself. 
so you know, put another way, if a, uh, electricity costs uh, you know ten or fifteen cents a kilowatt hour, there are businesses that co that cost them hundreds of dollars an hour for every hour the power's off. So those kinds of businesses, uh, you might imagine, already do things and spend real money to pay a premium to uh, create simplistically backup power. Data centers would fall in that category. They can't can't be out. They have to operate twenty four seven. Uh, and by by say twenty four seven, they have to operate twenty four seven down to the millisecond. Uh, data centers, when they go black, uh, are extraordinarily expensive to the to the businesses that are using them. There's not just losing a, a streaming movie on Netflix from the Amazon cloud. If you're a, a financial business, the cost of losing transactions can be measured in the in the millions of dollars per second. Wow. So, and and how how frequent? is that in the US right now I mean we all anecdotally have been through blackouts but I don't know if we know uh, you know what 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 the scale of reliability issues is now in the US so the the US grid is we've all heard this expression that gets used a lot this last uh, five or ten years about we we, uh, we have a grid a third world grid in America we keep being told in the uh, 21st century economy this is uh, a silly locution and, and dead wrong we have the most reliable grid on the planet the electric grid of the United States earned its place as the single most impressive engineering accomplishment of the 20th century. When the National Academy of Sciences looked back in the year 2000 at the engineering achievements of the 20th century. They listed 100 of the most important and impressive inventions of the 20th century. Number one was electric grid. So we don't have electric grid of the third world. We have electric grid that's the envy of the world. However, we have been we have been putting in place policies in many states which have degraded reliability and have prevented utilities from pursuing the kinds of technologies that one would pursue, in my opinion. If you return to a a, a, a policy focus of reliability being prime at low cost, so it, it, what we can do is look at different states. There's there's a really uh, nice uh, tool called the blackout tracker. In fact. <laughs> put together by the Eaton Corporation. Eaton is self-serving in this. Uh, unsurprisingly, they make the kind of equipment that's important to minimize blackouts. So it's no surprise that they, they've put together a blackout tracker. And the blackout tracker has it by, by country around the world. It's on the web. It's free. And by, by state in the United States. But the interesting uh, fact you, you see by going to the blackout tracker is that the frequency and durations of outages have been increasing in the last uh, 10 years in the United States by, by about... Um, you know, three to five percent a year. I think last year the frequency and durations went up by nine percent. So if you were doing an investment, if you were this financial metrics, remember a seven percent rate compounded is doubling every ten years. So the frequency of outages has pretty much doubled in the last decade. This is this is a, a, mo a motion in the wrong direction. Obviously, we we have in the last decade we've become a more intensely digital economy, which is a hundred percent dependent on electricity, and we're permitting the grid to become less reliable. I mean, this is this is uh, self-evidently nuts. So what are let's, so what are the specific policies now that are contributing? That I mean, you know, I, I object to the term renewable, so I, I like to call solar and wind unreliables. I mean, we have these mandates across the country and certainly in the aspirations of the so-called clean slash unreliable power plan of Obama and Clinton. And they're basically saying let's let's use way more of this stuff, even you know, far more percentage-wise than Germany. And then you have that all the way to people like Mark Jacobson at Stanford saying we can use a hundred percent solar and wind uh, and maybe a little bit of water uh, but no new dams 
to power the entire U.S. So there, there's a sentiment that we should just be going whole hog in this direction and there's no reliability risk whatsoever. Well, I like your phrase, the unreliables. <laughs> it's a, this is a exactly, it's, exact, it's, it's, it's not only the, the unreliables, or the unpredictables. Uh, there's a certain amount of predictability of the sun. We know we know it rises every day, but uh, if you are dependent on solar power and it gets cloudy, the what happens is when the cloud clouds pass over the array, they go from full output to uh, a fraction of output in in seconds, which is uh, which happens frequently and uh, mildly unpredictably uh, with solar arrays. It does not happen that way, of course, with a gas turbine or a coal-fired power plant. But so the 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 problem, of course, with the reliable grid is. Is in is exactly you put it exactly right, Alex. You can't use unreliable power sources to make a reliable grid. Uh, you could compensate for it, and so the, those those who are saying that we could power the whole grid with uh, wind and solar uh, are correct in this technical sense. If you spent enough money uh, and built enough power plants, enough ways to store electricity for when the wind isn't blowing and the sun's not shining, you could. Uh, replicate the reliability of the grid we have today. Uh, I've never seen anyone do that calculation. Uh, I, I will probably undertake that for a new paper I'm doing now on, on the grid. But my guess, sort of shoot from the hip, is you're looking at roughly a 10x increase in the cost of a grid to run it uh, with the unreliables, to run it as reliably with the unreliables. And that's for an obvious reason. If it's the sun's not shining, you, you have no power. And if you're, you're not going to use uh, baseload turbines that are powered by either falling water, big dams, coal plants, or, or natural gas plants, or burning oil, as they do in the Middle East, if you're not going to do that, there's only a few ways to store electricity because it's so difficult to store, and it's so expensive to store. So it's, self, it's sort of self-evident to say, I have to store it for when I want it later. But that has huge uh, cost implications, never mind the engineering implications. So it's uh, to say it's a chimera that you could run a grid on solar and wind entirely is, is, is almost an insult to the idea of a fantasy. It's not, it's not just fa fantasy, it's fantastical. It, it's just not going to happen. There's, there's no known uh, affordable engineering to allow one to, to store the electricity and, and deliver power at the levels society needs from just wind and solar. So what about, what about the, uh, I mean, I'm shocked that you estimate only 10 times. I would bet a lot of money this is, it's way more. I mean, because of the point you made about the instantaneous nature, which I think is, is just completely underappreciated. And I think even, I appreciated it more when you said it today, because it's not like, it's not like you just need to store the amount of energy that's used in a second. It's that you need, I don't know, in a day's worth. I mean, if you look at the German graphs of, of how much they get from the unreliables, you, so you need to build out the things, what, seven times over or something like that to, to get the real capacity, you know, for the, the, because you're just dealing with these phony capacity factors. So let's say you get right. conservatively, I mean, let, charitably, let's say you get 30%. So you need to build these things out many times over, but then when you're dealing in, say, winter, you know, which happens every year, it's, 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 you, you then need this massive amount of storage. And I think we're so used to this on-demand phenomenon. We just think, oh, you can, it's not that big a deal to store it. But, so that, but 
I, I want to read that paper. I think that that's a very necessary thing to calculate or at least to try. But the other thing that you get sometimes, and Jacobson is big on this, is matching. And they'll, you know, they'll show you these graphs. Oh, well, whenever the sun isn't shining one place, the wind is blowing, and so we'll just bring it from here to there, and can't we accomplish that with ingenuity? And so we don't, like Jacobson says, right. no storage is necessary. Right. Well, so your, your, uh, your, your, your instincts are correct. The uh, 10x would be a extraordinarily optimistic price penalty to pay and that that's that's why i said 10x only on the on this assumption you assume a perfect world where i only have to build three turbines wind turbines where one was sufficient because i have to store the extra power for when the wind's not blowing because as you know have average capacity factors of about 30 percent in the best possible wind areas so i'm going to put wind turbines only where it's the best possible wind which gives you your 30 percent so you build three when you only need one, because you have to have the store. And then you, when you're storing things, I'm going to, I'm assuming that I'm going to store with hydro dams because the only cheap way to store electricity is to run electric pumps, pump water uphill, let the water run downhill when, when you need electricity to spin the turbine uh, and make power. So, and we know the cost of those and they're, they're expensive, but they're not as expensive as batteries. They're about a 10th the cost of batteries and they're very reliable unlike batteries. And then you have to assume very long transmission lines, which are very expensive, but that's the way you would connect the wind turbines to the, the hydro dams. Now, all of this leads to less reliability and the way you buy reliability is this matching idea, not only matching wind to solar, but you also match demand to supply. You basically tell people you can't have power when there's not enough on the grid. And you, you start with vol volunteering, letting people volunteer, vol voluntarily not take, take power. And that that's already exists. I mean, these demand side management programs have been around for half a century. And they're very sophisticated. Industrial users have been using them for a long time. That's how a steel mill and big, big, big operators get cheap power. They tell the utility, look, uh, you, you tell me when you need me to ramp down, I can ramp down in minutes, sometimes I can ramp down in seconds, some can ramp down in an hour, and they, uh, they're on a distribution control system that gets some preferred pricing because they're willing to let consumers run their air conditioners when they need to, that kind of. So these things are all possible. So if you're really, really optimistic, you might, you might get to a number that's only 10 times more expensive. I'm being, I'm being very generous here. Your, your instincts are probably right. When, when I will sort of work through this, I suspect we'll find it's more like a 50 to 100x penalty at society levels of power. Uh, that's it, it's sort of as you as you correctly know, it's locked into the into the physics of of the realities of the planet we live on. The fact that it rotates, winds blow, they don't. The idea that you could you could match uh, demand uh, with load by having really long transmission lines is an old old idea. I mean, in fact, Europe gave uh, serious consideration to building a super grid of high voltage DC lines all the way to North uh, the North Africa to the Sahara. And the idea was to put massive uh, solar arrays where it's sunny a lot and connect Northern Europe to that. And then massive offshore wind farms in the uh, North Atlantic, which is windy a lot. It's uh, windy more than 30% of the time. And you know, you have huge, huge uh, transmission lines going back to uh, a couple thousand miles onshore. But these things, to say they're expensive uh, is, uh, 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 staggering. I mean, these numbers now get into the stratosphere. The, the annoying and insulting thing here, frankly, is that the whole purpose of the progress of technology with respect to energy should be the same as it is with food and everything else that's essential to life. In the perfect world, it would be free and only one person would operate the entire electric grid. It would take no human beings to be spending their time and labor making energy. Energy should be easy to make and everybody should get it for free. I mean, that's because it's so, it's so essential, it's so, so utterly critical. Obviously, that, that's, 
can't be the case. But we sort of got close to that in the in in America in the food business, right? I mean, it used to be everybody, if they weren't a farmer, essentially sixty percent of the population of the United States farmed to feed themselves. Now, if you're generous with statistics, as you know, and by generous, I mean really generously counting gentlemen farmers and hobby farmers, we can get to 2% of the population are farmers, not only feeding all of America, but feeding a lot of the world. That, and making food so cheap that the problem with starvation is not food or food costs, it's distribution and kleptocracy. That's where energy is going to go. That's where it should go. And everything that's going on today has taken us in the opposite direction. It's essentially making everybody operate like a farmer with 40 acres and a mule. Yeah, I love that. I love that focus on we should actually be making human progress because it's it's so much of the debate now is can we replace the status quo with this wildly inferior thing and somehow get away with it? And we don't have that kind of attitude and everything else. So that's really fascinating on electricity. Let's let's go to manufacturing. Um, so what what could be the future of manufacturing in this country? Well, the United States is experiencing, as I know you know, Alex, a, a nascent and exciting beginning of a, a manufacturing revolution based on cheap natural gas. As gas is an essential not energy feedstock, but a component feedstock in all the chemical processes. And we already are seeing an extraordinarily uh, bo extraordinary boom in uh, manufacturing plants being built. About, a, I believe, the last count that the American uh, Chemical Society uh, found was over 100 different manufacturing plants either being built de novo or expanded in the United States. Something on the order of uh, 70 or 80 billion dollars of private capital going into building those plants, all in the uh, energy intensive. Uh, chemicals manufacturing area. But the exciting thing about that is that once you have that start, uh, then you get a natural sort of ripple out from that on the less energy intensive manufacturing aspects of those industries, which are machine tools and robotics and control systems and analytics. There's a natural ecosystem to this. So it's already starting. The, here, here's the thing that's, uh, the, I think that's intriguing about manufacturing, and that's, from my perspective, extraordinarily bullish for the United States if we, if we don't screw it up. First, the idea that we could be a post-manufacturing society is uh, silly on the face of it. It's it, not true. It's never been true. We always have to make stuff. Things have to be manufactured out of natural materials. Everything that we use and do every day and will always and ever do will have to be manufactured. Manufacturing matters enormously in, the, in any kind of uh, society. It just does. So the key, the key is, uh, how do I make, again, it's like energy, how do I make the stuff better, more interesting, cheaper. It's always, always about that. What kind of technologies matter to do that? One is the energy input, but the other, the other is the whole tech sector of analytics, and computers, and control systems, where the United States leads. So we, we are leaders in the two key components to a manufacturing revolution, cheap inputs and the best class of new technologies that make a difference for manufacturing, which are the analytics, computing, and new materials. 3D printing is an example of it. It's not the only example. 3D printing, obviously, is where you do in three dimensions with, with plastics and metals what we do in two dimensions with a laser printer with paper and ink. That, that revolution is uh, nascent, even though there's been a lot of what I'll call hype about it so far, because it's still a nascent revolution and has not fully matured. Manufacturing also, is, as I'm sure you know, and many people know this, has the highest average wages paid to its workers, 
of all the sectors in the U.S. economy, higher than the, quote, tech sector. It's the manufacturing part of the tech sector that pays the best, highest average wages. Manufacturing has the highest multiplier effect in an economy. That is, a manufacturing business that, that generates a dollar of GDP generates more spinoff uh, in the GDP and more spinoff jobs in any other part of the U.S. economy or any other economy. So you really want to have manufacturing jobs in a country because they really do make an enormous difference in terms of the broad employment, the broad GDP, and the broad competitiveness of, a, of an economy. So here we are with that. We know that. This is not new information that manufacturing is so important. It's, it's, so, it's a powerful economic boost. We also know that we have the key inputs in terms of the, uh, the the two resources that matter, that is, if you like, the raw materials and the and the logic to convert those raw materials into valuable products, to unleash that in America, we have to have policies that make it pos possible for manufacturers to want to site here. Policies are the obvious ones; they relate to labor, they relate to taxation, and to regulations that allow you to build things. Okay. Well, what about, well, I want to ask about those, but what about the the narrative that I think people have in their minds that well we're permanently doomed in manufacturing because China's just going to pay people you know one eighth of a cent an hour, and therefore they're going to make all the stuff and we're going to lose and da 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 da. Well, in a, in a competitive in a competitive environment in the world, there will there will always be things other people might do better than us and manufacture more cheaply than us. Uh, so this is not it's not to say that you, that we can be or should be quote, self-sufficient in everything that we consume and that has all be manufactured here. But the, I mean, that's an important point in, in, in the obvious sense, that you don't necessarily believe that we're going to uh, make t-shirts again, where most of the t-shirts in the world are made in China now. So the narrative that China is going to beat us, I think, is, has it exactly backwards. Um, we already know, for example, for a fact, that when you take into account the three inputs to manufacturing, cost of labor, right, the cost of the cost of the materials and the infrastructure associated with that, which is energy, electricity, I mean, energy meaning the natural gas and oil, the oil parts of it, is feedstocks and electricity to power it and its reliability. And the third feature, of course, that matters is taxation. When you put the three together, the United States has been moving towards par with China in the last five years. It's kind of interesting. Chinese labor costs are going up. Chinese energy costs, real energy costs, because they have to subsidize them. I'm not talking, in the, in the real world, this, it, what matters is, is what the real costs are, not what the subsidized costs are, because ultimately, Mother Nature gets the win. You can't, you can't hide facts for too long. The real costs of manufacturing in America are moving towards, they're not there yet, towards parity for a lot of businesses, for a lot of technologies with China, particularly for heavy items. So if you're talking about automobiles, heavy equipment and machinery, anything that's physically heavy. You have to ship it to market. It costs energy and money and time to ship things. So the all factors come together. We're actually moving towards parity. The labor advantage that China's had is beginning to erode, slowly going away as labor uh, costs go up because of the rising quality of life and standard of living for Chinese nationals. If you then look forward, let's just say another decade or two, and consider that manufacturing will follow the same trajectory that agriculture did. There is invariably less and less labor input per unit of product produced. Not zero, but the amount of labor hours, hand hours to assemble a car per car goes down as, as automation rises. 3D printing is a classic example of that, of course, because you can imagine a world in which the 
a 3D printed item takes a whole lot of hand labor out of a lot of things. But robotics is already doing that. If you, if you take, let's just say the reductio ad absurdum here, is that the labor, all the labor in manufacturing moves away from the manufacturing of the object, but back upstream into the design and creation of the tools that allow you to manufacture things, then labor costs are disappearing. I mean, in theory, if a machine builds it, there's zero labor costs. All the costs are in the cost of the machine, your ability to manage and manufacture those machines. We're very good at those things. In fact, we're vastly better than China is at those things. Yeah, well, I like tying this also to the, your idea earlier about ideally it would be free, and which means you'd have unlimited productive ability, and then there would only be one person, which means that the productive ability would reside in machines, because obviously the more that resides in machine, I mean, not obviously, I think, unfortunately, because of our education system, but obviously, logically, you know, the more work that's done by machines, the more productive the individual uh, can be. So I like, I like thinking of manufacturing going in that direction versus just this idea that it's forever going to be individual labors, you know, sewing together t-shirts with uh, needle and thread, and that that's, you know, that's somehow what manufacturing is. So in terms of our policy, you mentioned uh, the major inputs. What should our policy be in terms of making maximum progress and where is it falling short? So the, 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 the key policy issues with manufacturers are not complicated. If you, it, it, it's a, it's a capital intensive industry. So if you have tax structure that, that uh, is disincents you from spending capital then you're going to hurt manufacturing. By definition, because as you say, it's it, it always it has always migrated towards more and more machine, more machine use per unit of output. That, that means synonymously, it's more and more capital required to be spent per unit of output. So anything that that disincents the spending of, of capital and the reinvestment of capital is bad. A very a very easy example is the repatriation of profits for tech companies and manufacturing companies in America, which have trillions of dollars sitting offshore. Uh, the reason that the money that the profits that are made offshore are not brought home is because the tax rate to bring it home is punitive. So you'd be—I mean, if it was your money and, and you had a, a bank account sitting overseas, it was perfectly legal to have there. But if you brought the money home, you have to give third away to the government. You might just leave it overseas. I mean, why would you bring it home? If it, if the tax rate were uh, near zero, you'd bring it home. In fact, I advocate a zero repatriation cost. But let's just be realistic, and you can't do that. If you were to say that the repatriation tax was five or ten percent, what that would mean is trillions of dollars would flow by companies back into the United States for investment in equipment and in jobs in America. Even if the government only got a few percentage points of that, the net effect in the economy would be extraordinary. It'd be like a stimulus far bigger than the stimulus that was put in place in 08 and 09, and it would be a free stimulus to the taxpayer because it wasn't taxpayers' money. It was profits for the private sector, and it would generate manufacturing jobs, which would generate more tax receipts to the federal government, and it would generate more growth in America. I mean, from, a, from one simple example of a policy that could be implemented that would boost manufacturing, be to repatriate the money. It, I suppose if we had to tinker, because politicians can't help themselves, you could stipulate that the money was tax-free if it was repatriated into the manufacturing sector. Okay, great. I, I, I'd support that. And if you bring it back and invest it in manufacturing, you pay 0% repatriation tax because of the extraordinary benefit that would bring to the American economy. Uh, what about in terms of just the difficulty of building things in the United States? 
Well, we certainly made it much harder, and this is this is difficulty is the bureaucratic state uh, run amok. We create uh, an increasing burden of regulations, and the regulations require businesses opt to do the obvious. They have to know what they are and have to be compliant with them. It's not like you can't be compliant with them, is that it takes time and costs money. This this biases the whole game towards big big companies by definition. They can have uh, phalanxes of lawyers and specialists who who scour the rule books, the Code of Federal Regulations to figure out how to how to accommodate everything. But I'll restate something I mentioned earlier that's easy to, to find the data on this online uh, at the uh, Federal Reserve and lots of academic studies. The majority of new jobs come from small businesses. That includes small manufacturing businesses. Those are the businesses that can least afford the extra costs and time and delay associated with of, of sort of winding your way through this labyrinth of complex and sometimes they feel like Machiavellian regula regulations. You just you can't you can't win. You can't if you can't figure it out. You might find yourself in criminal violation of a statute you didn't even know existed. The regulatory burden is growing. It's excessive. It's outrageous, and I think there are probably, I don't know, I think, let me give credit to the, the guys at CEI, the Competitive Enterprise Institute, for doing the uh, most interesting long-standing study at the size of the Code of, Code of Federal Regulations that want to cost the U.S. economy to, for compliance. I mean, the, the CFR, as it's called, has been growing. Uh, there's hundreds of thousands of pages of regulations. It, some of these regulations date back, if not decades, some centuries that make no sense in the modern world. And the compliance cost is very real. It's, it, it provides a drag on the economy and a drag on the formation of new businesses. Well, that is, that is really bad. I mean, we see it, I mean, you see it just all over the place. I, I sometimes describe it as we're becoming, uh, we're, we're going from a nation of builders to a nation of blockers. Yeah, or, or going from a nation of, of engineers to a nation of regulators. Right, you could you could be dystopian and, and do uh, you know a Kurt Vonnegut kind of novel. In the future, you have one uh, engineer who is a brilliant manufacturer, and he's being reporting to and being regulated by a phalanx of a thousand regulators and bureaucrats who watch over him constantly, and make sure he behaves. I mean, that's that's that's, that's and get the like. moral and get the moral credit as protecting yeah. society from his, his exactly. evil designs. But here's the, here's the good news. At one time in modern history. The government has not only stopped the growth in the Code of Federal Regulations, but reversed it and caused it to shrink. You will be unsurprised to know that happened under President Reagan, uh, a president who I was you know, proud to say I served under the science office back in the day. But if you go to uh, go to Google and Google up you know, the CFR and look at the – there are charts of the growth of the Code of Federal Regulations over the last century. Uh, at one brief shining moment for two, administration, two administrative periods – over eight years, we saw in America the CFR shrink. My point of that is that it can be done. It can be done, and it can be done again. And the, and the way it was done was not to throw out regulations that made sense. Of course, we want clean water. Of course, you want people to uh, meet compliance requirements for, for safety and earthquake preparedness. I mean, these are all the kind of regulations that make sense. What he, what he instructed all the agencies to do was to find out what regulations were outmoded, contradictory, conflicting. A lot of regulations conflict with each other. You, you meet A, you're in violation of B. And, and ordered all the agencies, by executive order, which is, of course, what this president does, to go and find out what was conflicting, uh, antiquated, or downright silly, and get rid of it. And it worked. Got rid of a lot of them. Now, I, I hate to say we've... It, we've <laughs> We've, we've, we've 
uh, eaten up all the gains and blown past it in the in the decades since. But it can be reversed. It is possible, but it takes an enormous act of political will. All right. So um, before we uh, on our call before we started the show, you mentioned that you had some stuff to say about R and D. So spill it. So here's here's the, the the thing that everyone agrees on politically. Setting aside how we achieve it, everyone agrees that basic research and development are critical to the future of the United States. No one doubts that we need more more discovery. It doesn't matter whether the issue is for medicine, for the environment, for energy, for transportation, for communications. Everything is begins with understanding how things work and finding and literally in not just inventing things that appear to violate Mother Nature, but we all have our own apocryphal examples of pivots in history that occur because of some phenomenal discovery. So we all want more R&D. question is, how do you get it? How do you get more, more new stuff, new science, new insights? I did a, a long paper on this, probably my most difficult piece of research that I've done in a long time. But I say most difficult because the canon of research that exists on research is so big and so broad. But in looking at what was going on, I reached a couple of conclusions which are pretty easy to summarize and not that complicated. I don't think it'd be too difficult to, to confirm. First, unsurprisingly, most breakthroughs don't happen because you order the breakthrough. Right? Just simplistic way of saying it. You'd, we didn't get penicillin because somebody went looking for penicillin. We didn't get the transistor because someone wanted to find a, a semiconductor switch to make uh, computers work. They wanted to find a better switch, but they, we, didn't, we didn't have all classes of new discoveries from, from the genome to uh, the nuclear fission to even photovoltaics. These things didn't come about because some government bureaucrat, some politician or some buddy said, I need this new thing. The, the new thing that people want that gets conflated and, mis and, and confused with basic science is, I'd like to go to the moon, or I'd like to build an aircraft carrier, or I'd like to, to build a different kind of of a roof on a house. These kinds of engineering challenges are very specific and narrow. If you want breakthroughs in science and engineering, you, you have to live with the reality that it's serendipitous. It happens because really smart people are free to explore very difficult problems in the way they want. You don't know who's going to have the breakthrough. So once you state that, and this has been true throughout history, once you state that, they have to, how do I get more of that? You get more of that by funding without constraint or restrictions of basic science and basic engineering. You don't tell people, I want a better solar cell. You can do that if you make solar cells. You tell your engineers that. But if you're the government and you would like to have new phenomenology materials that might permit, let's say, bacteria to excrete diesel fuel, wouldn't that be kind of cool? I mean, we don't, we don't have that, but Craig Ventner thinks that might be possible. The person that invents that will not be the one you direct to do it, or, or it may not even come from it a, a a university or a researcher you expect. So how do you get more basic science? Well, I, I hate to say this, uh, I think but there's an easy answer. You really do have to give a lot of money to scientists and engineers. You just let, have to let them do what they love doing. And the best place for them to do that are in, in corporate R&D labs, of course. They do a lot of that. They used to back in the day, like Bell Labs. But mostly at universities. But university systems are migrating more and more towards directed research because they get their money from the government, from we the taxpayers where the government says, I would like more of, I want a better battery. 
we're not going to get a better battery by the government saying I need a better battery and funding that research. We're going to get better batteries from foundational discoveries in electrochemistry, which will come from areas that are totally unpredicted. The only way we can afford this, and we can't afford it, is to get the government out of the business of funding industrial projects like wind turbines or like solar farms. Or, I mean, I go through a long list. I'm just picking on those because they're easy to pick on. We could put it, put it this way in, a, in, a, in political terms. We need more scientists and fewer cylindras funded by the federal government, where a cylindra was a commercial industrial project to make solar cells that the government paid a half billion dollars to in a form of grants and loans and went belly up. That half billion dollars could have funded a lot of scientists, a lot of R&D for a lot of years in universities and far more likely to produce interesting breakthroughs in material science than cylinder ever could. You leave the private sector to industrial projects. And we don't need to spend more taxpayers' money. My, my proposals are really simple, maybe obvious one. Let's just take the money we're now spending, which has been cut back. You could even cut it back a little bit and eliminate corporate welfare in basic science. Let industry do the, the R&D projects that are specifically directed toward making their product better. Let the taxpayers fund basic science, not industrial projects. The amount of money that's flowing into uh, you could be in one kind, the kleptocracy of you know corporate welfare, that kind of billions of dollars that are flowing there, be much better off flowing into universities. Don't get me wrong, universities aren't perfect. It's not like they're gonna they're these are these are bastions of perfect virtue. It's just that's where basic science is advanced. And the money exists, we have it, we just need to direct it to the right place, which is to unfettered, open ended research. Well, now I want to do a show on that because I have lots of questions about that one. Um, but uh, wait, let's actually just ask, is the paper, you, you mentioned a paper on that. Is that available online for people to check out? It is. It's at uh, the Manhattan Institute website. So if, if uh, the easiest way to find it is just to Google my name with middle initial Mark P. Mills at Manhattan what, Institute. What's it called? We'll link to it in the, on the page, on our page. I'm sorry? What's the paper called? Oh, um, what do we end up calling it? <laughs> this is embarrassing. Hang on a second. I'll tell you right right now. Let's pull it up because the uh, we had to uh, we had to come up with a title that would make some sense and be m very memorable. Apparently, yeah. Well, it, <laughs> it's, you know, this is uh, this is the challenge with titles of anything. It, it's, uh, it's always the battle between you. We've had the same between editors and and uh, writers and researchers. It's just called basic research at the innovation frontier. All right, great. We'll post that. We'll post that one. Okay, last uh, last topic before we wrap up. Uh, tech sector, which is obviously a huge category, but you've written a lot about the intersection uh, between energy and tech, and I think that's really a theme of your your Forbes column, which we'll also link to. Uh, what are the opportunities in the tech sector that you know that are open to us if we do the right things? So we we are, I think the easiest way to to sort of uh, simplistically summarize it is with drones. Everyone has been reading about drones and you know what drones are capable of doing, both good and bad. And, and keep in mind that what a drone represents is the uh, the epitome of what's going on in technology right now, which is the intersection of the physical world, things that actually move around, like car, automated automated cars or drones, with computing, control systems, communications, and navigation. They all sort of come together in this really slick 
neat thing that we're pretty excited about when you read about what drones can do, whether it's deliver Amazon packages or make farming uh, more efficient or make environmental monitoring actually viable and, and, and cheaper. So we are doing things in, in a way that makes sense. In other words, con controlling and monitoring things that matter as opposed to a blunderbuss approach. The problem we've got is that that, that whole business is uh, being now regulated by the FAA uh, using rules that were designed for the dawn of aviation. They just don't line up. So the, uh, the, whole, the whole regulatory construct of, of, of uh, how we deal with both self-driving cars or automated drones or even 3D printing are anchored in the 20th century. It's, it's, the regulatory drag is phenomenal. Here's the, here's the challenge I don't think Silicon Valley is fully absorbed, is that they used to be, to use the old expression, the enfant terrible of the, of the world. They were the upstarts. They were, the, they were being ignored by the regulators. Well, Uber has discovered, as we all know, that the regulators are no longer ignoring what Uber is doing to the old taxi industry. FAA is not ignoring what's going on in the aviation industry or with respect to the control of, of what we can do and fly. This is going to be true all across the, the board in the tech sector. The single biggest problem we have is the regulatory state is not only too big, it is anchored in old paradigms. And that's perfectly understandable, but we're going through a transition that I don't think Silicon Valley has fully woken up to. Some of the folks there have. Uh, and the real challenge they've got is, uh, frankly, a political one. And the politics of advancing technology really ones are fully anchored in the, into the politics of fundamental freedoms of businesses. These are now very big businesses that are finding themselves being constrained the same way electric utilities are being constrained. They don't like it. And with a little luck, they'll, they'll sort of team up if, and even perhaps team up with the electric utilities to figure out how to unshackle the regulatory burden on these industries. The Uber thing is, is particularly alarming. I mean, it's, it seems as one thing I've noticed about, you know, the quote-unquote tech sector, which I'm not, not thrilled with that term, but, you know, the, it's as if people are discovering that this seemingly non-material industry is, in fact, unbelievably material. So you have things like the data centers, but you also have the controversies over what is in an iPhone and that kind of thing. And, oh, my gosh, it's not being made in a green way. And, and I think if solar panels and windmills ever became efficient, people would do a lot of discovery or, I mean, it's already known, but they would notice, hey, look at all these mining practices and look at all these disposal practices. And there's just a fundamental non-recognition, which goes back to your point about manufacturing, that life is, human survival is really about transforming raw materials to useful goods, i.e. manufacturing. And, and uh, yeah. yeah. You're absolutely right. In fact, you're, you, you, you touch on a, a point I've spent a lot of my life uh, articulating as well as doing basic research on back when I, I built and manufactured things. The information economy is very real. It's not virtual. It consumes extraordinary quantities of energy. It consumes extraordinary quantities of materials just to make it exist and operate. Of course, it can cause efficiencies in the systems. You, know, you make a tractor more efficient by guiding it with GPS. That's, that's, that's true. But the GPS system itself involves uh, spaceships that launch satellites that consume huge amounts of fuel and materials. The actual operating system of the whole data network is phenomenally energy intensive. Uh, you touched on one that is a, a sensitive one for the tech community because the quantity of data centers in the world and the information networks that carry the data to and from the data centers is now the fastest single growing source of electric demand in the world. 
the quantity of energy used to power the global internet and cloud, the total amount of energy for that internet system that moves information is now greater than the total amount of energy used to fly airplanes in the world. Energy used for aviation is growing but growing slowly. Energy used for information systems is growing but growing faster. In fact, a number that I calculated that made Apple very unhappy because I used the iPhone as my example, but it wasn't targeting the iPhone. This is true for an Android phone. The, the average millennial's use of an iPhone consumes as much electricity each year as the refrigerator in a house. Yeah, I lifted that fact with attribution in one of my articles. Good um, man. <laughs> so. Well, here's, a, here's another way to put it. This is more, maybe more interesting. The energy you use to watch an MLB, a Major League Baseball game, on your phone and streaming high def is greater than driving 30 miles to the ballpark in your Prius. Oh, there's, there's a good one. No, that that's that's definitely it's definitely getting stolen. Hopefully, uh, but but it's it's yeah, it's just it's, there's all this remarkable stuff. And and well, with that in mind, oh, Mark, where can people read all of your different papers? Because you have just some of the coolest facts, in, as well as really good analysis in a lot of these papers. Well, um, the, the, most of them, not most, of them, some of them are at uh, the Manhattan Institute website. A fair number of them. So if they go to manhattan-institute.org to my page. There's a lot of links to articles and op-eds and reports. And all of my, well, pretty much all of my uh, research and papers uh, more broadly are at a website called Tech Pundit, which is tech-pundit.com. So it's manhattan-institute.org and tech-pundit.com. And then my Forbes column is my research report, reports. In fact, uh, two years ago, I, the, the paper that uh, has the iPhone refrigerator calculation in it which was which was intemperately titled "The Cloud Begins with Coal." That report is free; it's there. Uh, the data in it are not outdated yet. Uh, the basic analysis is still correct, even though it ignited a bit of a firestorm of unhappiness in the uh, the green community, who who seem to think that uh, cyberspace is virtual in every sense, <laughs> as opposed to real. So th those are the two easiest places to find uh, uh, articles, reports, and. Uh, some uh, podcasts and those kinds of things. Yeah, it just occurred to me, anytime you notice something in the world that wasn't put there by nature, it took energy and manufacturing to get there. Absolutely. Oh, you can expand that, Alex. Anything you notice, anything in the world, anytime, anywhere, it took energy. Because we would exist without energy. But you're right. If, if yeah, human man-made man power, I should say. <laughs> exactly. If human beings did it, it consumed more energy. But you could add the maximus, the more beautiful it is, or the faster that it goes, or the more precise that it is, or the more energy, more information intensive it is, it used more energy. Awesome. Well, I love... I love the future progressive in the real sense of the word uh, attitude. So, Mark, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Alex. Thanks again to Mark Mills for joining us. I think most of the ideas I had got expressed during the show. At the end, he raised the issue of R&D and what should be the role of government in funding it and, and generally... This is always framed as an issue of how should the government fund it rather than whether. And I'm definitely in the 
in the camp of challenging the weather, and I don't believe it should be involved in funding. And I think that the entire uh, pursuit of science should be uh, private. So that would mean private universities, uh, private corporations, private charitable donations. But I think the damage done in all kinds of ways by government involvement in science is is absolutely catastrophic in terms of uh, wasted resources, but I think more importantly, inadvertently restricting or sometimes intentionally restricting innovation, totally biasing the, the way that uh, funds go, that research goes. Even if you say you're going to do it an unbiased way, you have to make decisions about amount, about whom it goes to, and that inevitably goes to a certain kind of establishment. And I think with the the catastrophic global warming movement, you have an example of how devastating uh, government-funded science can be. So um, we didn't get into that. That came up at the end, but that is uh, an overview of my position. On previous episodes with Pat Michaels, I believe the first one we did with him on his book Climate Coup, we discussed this issue a bit. Eric Dennis and I have discussed it from time to time, I believe, on the show. And if you want a really good article on this issue check out The Establishing of an Establishment by Ayn Rand, which is in the book Philosophy Who Needs It. Uh, Also, she briefly addresses this issue in the essay What is Capitalism in the book Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. So it's just a brief passage. That essay might be online, but in any case, uh, that passage alone is worth the price of admission, as are uh, many, many other passages from that book. All right. Big news this week is I launched the Energy Liberation Plan, which is my view of the direction energy policy should head in. I wanted to give people something to be able to send to political officials, something that political officials can use and run on, and I believe it'll not only be the right thing to do, but in terms of political appeal, I think it'll enable people who are fighting for energy freedom, or at least relative energy freedom, to take the moral high ground. Right now, the issue has been so defined as as how to make as little impact as possible on the planet, and that's the priority with energy versus maximizing human flourishing, which is, you know, that's the moral ideal behind energy liberation. Uh, because it's been so misframed, it's been a, a debacle, and I've been circulating an essay called... Um, how to make energy a winning issue for Republicans in 2016. Uh, If you're really interested in that, email me and I'll probably send you a copy. Um, But in any case, the public article is on Forbes, so you can just Google Energy Liberation Plan or it'll be on our website. And uh, you can go to energyliberationplan.com to sign up to receive news and to receive the plan when it launches on October 5th. There's a slight issue with that link. Um, So I might say at first that it's not working, but if you give it about five seconds, it should work just fine and you can enter in your info. So that is the big thing to do, but all the usual ones still apply. Industrialprogress.com, subscribe to the newsletter. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, even Instagram now, so check us out there as well. Both, not both, I guess, what's the both equivalent for three? There's me, Alex Epstein, there's Center for Industrial Progress, there's I Love Fossil Fuels, and also I Love Nuclear, so Perhaps too many pages, but in any case, pick one, pick all, and follow along and and see what's going on, see our commentary on the latest developments. All right, as always, any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Next week, we'll be back with another great guest, another great show, 
Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.